Hello, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm Mike Wong, and today I'm opening a subspace channel to Madison, Wisconsin to catch up with Erica Carlson. Erica last joined us on Strange New Worlds in Episode 3, and since then has had some exciting developments in her career. Now as a fledgling science writer, she's publishing content for Discover Magazine, and I get to ask her about some of her recent work, her mission as a science communicator, and her take on some recent Star Trek news. Welcome back, Erica. Thank you. It's really exciting to have you back on this podcast because I just realized that it's basically an entire year since the last time we had you on Strange New Worlds. Pretty much, yeah. I don't remember the date or even the exact month, but I do remember it was last summer. Yeah. So Facebook does this thing where it shows you like what happened on this date, <laughs> on this date. <laughs> year, a year ago, two years ago, etc. And I think it was just yesterday that actually I posted a picture of our very first recording together for Strange New Worlds. Oh. And yeah, so that was really cool. So it has been a year then. It's basically been a year, which actually reminds me that Strange New Worlds is now a little bit more than a year old. I didn't know that. I, I Happy thought... birthday! <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's... Happy birthday, Strange New Worlds. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, so you are on episode three of Strange New Worlds, titled The Star Hunter. Mm-hmm. And wow, episode three was so long ago. I actually just re-listened to that episode to get me <laughs> pumped up for this. And... It was pre-Star Trek Discovery, and you helped us get hyped about the new series by explaining the science of binary and trinary star system formation, which was inspired by the binary star system that featured in that initial Star Trek Discovery trailer, and then later on very heavily in the first two episodes of Discovery. And since it's been an entire year since I spoke to you last, which is really a shame, we should speak more often. Uh, (laughs) um, At least verbally. Yeah. Spoken in text more often. (laughs) That's right, yeah. Text messages and and letters, etc. But yeah, since we haven't caught up since then, and I haven't really talked to you at all about Star Trek Discovery, I was wondering if you have any general thoughts that you'd like to share on the new series of of what you've seen so far. Yeah, so I I was watching Star Trek Discovery. I didn't finish it, but I watched the first several episodes. And of course, something that I really enjoyed was the fact that the very second episode was actually called The Battle at the Binary Stars. And, you know, for my research topic to be in the title of a Star Trek episode, Binary Stars, that was pretty exciting. Mm Mm-hmm. That was fun. And of course, I made sure to tell my all my fellow like research group mates about that so they knew. I also think it's funny that in the Star Trek Discovery Universe, they actually called this battle the battle at the binary stars because that's a little bit like calling a battle like the battle at a mid-sized town. There are <laughs> mid-sized towns everywhere. Interesting. <laughs> it's not like saying at the binary stars. It's like which one? There are so many. Yeah. Half of stars that are like our sun are in binary or trinary systems. So they're really 
it's really not a very good description of where something happened. <laughs> That's a really good insight. So as I was listening to our podcast for episode three of Strange New Worlds, I was reminded about how you blew my mind about how many stars out there are actually in multiple star systems. And mm -hmm. that's definitely an insight that you just brought up that I didn't have when I watched the show. And it takes somebody like you who actually studies binary stars to you know, make that connection and say, oh, wait, that's actually not very descriptive at, at all because there's so many of them out there. Yeah, it was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, Erica, there's been some Star Trek news very recently this past right. week that I want to share with you and the listeners and then ask you a little bit about it. So the okay. big headline from this past week is that Alex Kurtzman, who was a scriptwriter and producer for the reboot, or as we call it these days, Kelvin Timeline Films, and is also the executive producer and now showrunner of Star Trek Discovery. He signed a five-year deal with CBS to extend the Star Trek franchise for TV, developing new series, miniseries, and other content opportunities. So that's really exciting because... Star Trek for the past hmm, decade or so has been moving along at a rather slow pace. For a while there, we had a movie every three to four years, and that was it. And now we have one new Star Trek series, but it's been a really long time since multiple Star Trek TV series were in production at the same time. And along with this... Uh, news came some rumors and ideas for new Star Trek TV shows. So one of those is a Star Trek series set at Starfleet Academy. Another one is for a Star Trek series based around Khan, Kirk's evil nemesis. Mm -hmm. um, another one is an animated Star Trek series that has no plot details yet. And one that really excites longtime Star Trek fans like myself is a series that might feature Patrick Stewart reprising his role as Jean-Luc Picard. And there have been some rumblings. Stewart has given some very vague but hinty interviews where you know, <laughs> maybe he's trying to imply that either himself or other Stars from Star Trek The Next Generation might appear on an upcoming episode of Star Trek Discovery. Now, all of those are rumors. None of that has been confirmed <laughs> by CBS. So maybe none of these things will happen. But I wanted to ask you, Erica, uh, which of those ideas sounds the most exciting or appealing to you? I think having a show about Starfleet Academy would be really interesting because that's a, a pretty different angle from past Star Trek shows, right, where it's not a crew of people on a ship, for example, but it's people on Earth who are, you know, preparing to become the people who go on the ships. So I think exploring more of what Starfleet Academy, what a, what a school system, what the school system, this training system looks like, that sounds pretty interesting to me. Yeah, me too. So I've spent the past 23 years of my life in school. And... <laughs> I really don't know anything else besides 
being in an academic environment. And so the idea of seeing a Star Trek series centered upon the schooling system of the 24th or 23rd centuries just seems (laughs) really exciting to me. I feel like if we got to see what classes are like at Starfleet Academy, there's definitely going to be a lot of science and science fiction overlap in that. And there will be a lot more to talk about on this podcast. So yeah, definitely. I'm really excited about (laughs) a series at Starfleet Academy. Well, lots of exciting things to look forward to in Star Trek and lots of exciting things to look forward to in your life story as well. <laughs> so I heard that you recently got a new job, Erica. What's what's your new position? Yeah, it's technically, maybe technically not a job in the most traditional sense, but it's like a summer job. Yeah, so recently I started doing a science writing fellowship, and this is called the AAAS Mass Media Fellowship, where AAAS is the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I always have to remember what order those A's go in. Um, It's the AAAS Mass Media Fellowship, which is this program designed to take science and engineering students, usually grad students, or recent graduates of graduate programs who are interested in either bettering their science communication skills or interested in actually looking into careers in science writing, science journalism, and so on. So it's a, it's a program designed to take those students and put them in newsrooms across the U.S. and immerse them in newsrooms for 10 weeks and have you actually be a journalist and a, a science writer for 10 weeks. I just finished my second week, and I'm currently at Discover Magazine, which is based here in Wisconsin. That's really awesome. So. Discover is both a print and online science news service, I gather? Yeah, so so the magazine, of course, came first, and it's a lot older than the website. So the magazine is kind of a more traditional science magazine, so you'll have, it's not so much news because magazines, you know, take months of production time, you know, so if you were just reporting news, it'd all be like half a year old all the time. So it's kind of interesting science stories like trends or kind of big things that have come up in science or just really obscure things that people don't know about mostly um, that get put into this magazine format. Um, And then the online website for Discover is a little bit more of like recent news and sometimes people blogging and that kind of thing. I see. You know, science communication is a really important job to have in the current climate here in the United States where sometimes science and the reputation of facts <laughs> and evidence-based knowledge um, has taken some some hits from certain entities <laughs> in the United mm-hmm, States. Mm-hmm. But science communication also is a really important role for people in Star Trek as well. And so you know how every Star Trek series has their science officer. For Kirk, mm-hmm. it was Spock. And for Picard, it was Data. Cisco had Dax, etc. And one thing that really impresses me about all of these science officers is how well-versed they are in all areas of science. One moment <laughs> Spock is 
analyzing astrophysical phenomena on the bridge and the next he's on a planet understanding some crazy exobiology or building a fancy <laughs> instrument from scratch and then he's back up on the ship debugging the computer to bypass some kind of glitch and as a practicing scientist I know how hard it is to gain expertise in like just one very narrow field of science yeah <laughs> <laughs> but not only does Spock know it all he can also explain all of those crazy very technical things to his captain and now james t kirk is no intellectual pushover but he's certainly not a scientist of mr spock's yeah. caliber so spock often finds himself in these situations of needing to translate very technical information dealing with the edges of knowledge to his captain so that kirk can quickly assess the situation and issue the appropriate orders and, you know, that science communication duty, to me, is just as critical as Spock's scientific investigation. Because if Spock and only Spock knew what was going on, that doesn't do very much good. So you've recently decided to get into science communication and dive in headfirst. What inspired you to choose the path of a science writer? Um, Great question. I think, in essence, it's kind of similar to what you just described about what Spock is doing, for example. So of course, I was also in a situation where I was doing science research and, you know, getting expertise in a very, very narrow field, which was also, you know, very rewarding and very fun in its own way. But for me, what was even more interesting and even more exciting was when I could share what I've learned with other people and learn from other people about really interesting science that's going on and uh, learn about so much more beyond just what I was working on from the day to day. So that was a big factor in my decision to go into science communication is like, I, I really enjoy learning about lots of different things. That's really fun. So there's the kind of, I was interested in it and it was fun aspect, but also like really passionate about it. And that I think it's really important because like you said, it doesn't do that much good. Even if, you know, Spock has made some you know, profound discoveries, it doesn't do much good if he's the only one who understands it. It's only really like relevant if he can communicate that to the rest of the crew or to Kirk or whoever needs to know know about it in order to act on it. You know, a lot of the time, the science that scientists do day to day is not going to be, it's not necessarily going to be life-changing or save the day or anything like that. But still, I think of science as kind of a big human endeavor where it may only be a few people who are actively doing it, but it's human society as a whole that's enabled those few people to go do it. And therefore, I think as much of the benefits should be available to human society as a whole as possible. So all these cool discoveries are being made, and I want to make sure that even the people who are not making those discoveries get to learn about them and get to experience how cool it is to understand new stuff about our universe. That's wonderful, and I totally agree. A lot of scientific research is funded through public money, through your taxpayer dollars, mm -hmm. especially anything that was discovered using NASA technology or, or grants or, right. or things like that. So being able to give back to the rest of the population and share the wonders of the universe that we've been discovering uh, is a really big part of, of the scientific community. And you're doing that role in your position 
at Discover right now. So as of this recording, you have published three articles online so far. Erica, mm -hmm. could you tell us a little bit about those stories? And then I'll ask you, what stories are you currently working on? Yeah, so I've published three news stories online for Discover so far. The very first one that I kind of started working on the first day that I got to the office was about an astrophysical phenomenon. So for the, my first assignment, they gave me a story that was kind of, you know, in my field. And what the story was, so black holes have extremely strong gravitational forces, and sometimes they rip apart stars that happen to get too close to them. And when they rip apart this star, they consume part of the star, part of the star gets deposited, or the rest of the star gets deposited onto this swirling disk of material that kind of surrounds the black hole. And when that material gets put onto that disk, it releases this huge amount of energy and creates this bright flash. And from, you know, from far away, from here on Earth, that might look like a star has just gone supernova. But if you can actually get a little more detailed information about it, you can figure out oh, it was actually a star getting ripped apart by a black hole, not a star exploding. It wasn't the first time this type of event had been observed. Astronomers have found these events before, but it was the first time they'd gotten such good observations of it, and they got it over a period of like 10 years. So it's a pretty unique opportunity for astronomers to study this object. That's really cool. If I um, may, I'd like to read the first sentence of that article out, because <laughs> it was a really catching first sentence. That went. I'd be honored. <laughs> Astronomers <laughs> Seppo Matilla and Miguel Perez Torres usually study the natural deaths of stars, but they weren't going to pass up the chance to investigate a stellar murder, <laughs> which really <laughs> right, captures so this... the imagination. Yeah. How did you How did you come up with those words? Right. Yeah. So in journalism. You call like the first sentence or two of your story is called a lead and it's supposed to be what hooks the reader into the story so people will often put something that's funny something that's really surprising something that will get the reader to want to read more yeah so i was you know like sitting at my computer staring at a blank word document and kind of pondering for a while like how do i want to start this story and i thought about how so this event, it may have looked like a supernova at first, like a star exploding, but it was actually a star getting ripped apart by a black hole. And that kind of got me thinking about this, uh, I guess, this dichotomy, this comparing these two events that it appeared to be, but what it actually was. And, you know, a supernova is a natural death for a star. It's a star, you go through the course of its life, and it explodes. That's a natural death. But this other event that they observed and that I wrote about for this story that was a star that happened to get too close to a black hole and poor thing got torn apart. So <laughs> that's how I thought of the murder analogy. Excellent. And the next two stories that you wrote for Discover are kind of outside of your field of study. So tell us about them. The second story I wrote about was about this very old fossil of a giant panda. So I was attracted to this story when I first heard about it just because pandas and also the <laughs> fact that this fossil was really, really old. <laughs> so um, some scientists in China had found a 22,000-year-old panda fossil. And it was the skull of the panda, too. So that's kind of like a really cool part of the animal to find, I think. Anyway, so the scientist who actually found this fossil brought it back and gave it to a colleague who was interested in pandas. And she decided to lead this project to actually see if they can extract the DNA from this old fossil. 
yeah, so she and her team extracted DNA from this 22,000-year-old fossil. It was mitochondrial DNA that they managed to extract, so from the mitochondria of cells, not from the nucleus of the cells. And they sequenced that DNA. I heard you and Elise talked about gene sequencing a little bit in the last episode. Yeah. So the DNA. <laughs> so listeners, and, if you're interested in learning more about DNA yes. sequencing, go read Erica's article online oh. and also <laughs> listen to episode 38 all about evolution. Anyhow, continue, Erica. Yeah, yeah. So they uh, sequenced the DNA from this 22,000-year-old panda fossil and found out, you know, it is indeed a panda and is related to current modern-day pandas that are still living in China today. But... Their last common ancestor was so long ago. Their last common ancestor was like 180,000 years ago. So th this panda that they found was in a very separate branch of a family tree, even within the same giant panda species umbrella. So that was interesting. And also where they found it too, because they found it in southern China, where there aren't any giant pandas currently living. Giant pandas today all live in central China in the mountains. The scientist who was doing this study was interested in, like, what role does the environment play in these pandas' lives and that kind of thing, too. So that was really fun, just because, like, fossils and pandas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can tell you had fun with that story. And the last one had to do with creatures that perhaps are not as universally adored as pandas, but they're really cool, <laughs> too. So what was the third piece on? The third story I wrote that I just published uh, this past Thursday was about this particular species of moth. And yeah, you're right, you know, moths are not as universally adored as pandas, but I think this particular moth is pretty darn cute. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, scientists are interested in insects that migrate over long, long distances. And for example, the monarch butterfly migrates from all over North America to this one spot in Mexico every winter to spend winter in this warm area. And this moth species that I wrote my story about is kind of a similar idea, but in Australia and migrates from all over Australia into a very particular spot in the Australian Alps in Southern Australia for the summer to actually escape the heat. So it kind of does the opposite of what the monarch butterfly is doing. The other parallel too is like monarch butterflies are diurnal insects. They're active during the day and they fly during the day. Moths are nocturnal insects and they fly around and are active at night. So there's kind of an interesting parallel going on between monarchs and these moths that are not very well known compared to the monarchs. These moths, this moth species is called the bogong moth. But anyway, scientists are interested in how these insects actually navigate for such large distances. These moths can they fly for over like 600 miles, most of them, to actually come to these specific caves and these specific mountains. So the kind of the senior scientist of this group who was studying this moth is an expert in animal vision especially animal vision in dim light conditions. So he's interested in studying the vision of animals in the deep sea or at night. And he was expecting that these moths probably navigate with kind of visual landmarks, whatever the visual landmarks might be. But they decided, you know, they were you know, testing their hypotheses and they decided to do this experiment to see if magnetic fields of the earth might have any effect on their migrations because we know that Birds, some species of birds and fish and sea turtles can migrate long distances using the Earth's magnetic field. So what they did was they built these little moth flight simulators <laughs> where <laughs> the moth was kind of attached to, to a rod 
in the center of this round plastic chamber and they put some markings like on one part of the chamber so that there was kind of a preferred visual landmark and they also put some coils around this thing so there's they can control magnetic fields around it and mimic the earth's magnetic fields so they had to capture some moths as they were in the process of migrating put them in their little moth flight simulators so they had the direction of the magnetic field set up at a particular angle to the visual landmarks at first so there's just one still kind of set up but then they found that when they turned the magnetic field direction it actually confused the moths and they stopped flying in the same consistent direction they'd been flying in wow but if they turned the magnetic fields and the landmarks at the same time so that there wasn't any actually overall change in their orientation the moths were totally fine and kept flying you know towards the landmarks but if you only move the magnetic fields they got confused and started flying in random directions and not just towards landmarks. So that showed at least that the moths can definitely sense these magnetic fields because they're being affected by them and that they probably do use them to help them navigate, at least in some way. That's really fascinating. Yeah, it was really interesting to learn about and pretty fun to write about too. So which of these stories would you say you had the most fun working on? For me, actually, this this moth story, this last one has been the most fun. I was, you know, I was intrigued by the topic, like, oh, these moths might, you know, migrate using magnetic fields. That's interesting. But then learning about how the experiment was actually done, it was really fun. This, how they built a little moth flight simulator. So once you get a story assignment from Discover, what are the steps that you take turning that story into a full article? So it depends on the kind of story, but for these like news stories that I've been working on that are all about like a recent result that was published in a paper. So the first step is, yeah, to choose the topic. So for me, the first story was assigned to me. The second two, I kind of looked around for topics and like pitched it to an editor and got it approved. Oh, cool. Yeah. So for a news story that's based on a published study, first step is like read the paper. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually get the paper that is describing this new discovery, read through it to get a general idea of what was done. So then uh, I can actually interview the scientists involved and first off, maybe ask some clarifying questions about anything I didn't understand in the paper or anything that I was a little bit confused about or something that seemed kind of intriguing that I might have a little bit more interesting stuff behind it. I'll ask about that. And otherwise, just ask about other stuff that, you know, that doesn't make it into a scientific paper, like the process of, okay, so how do you catch these moths and that kind of thing? Or how did you get this panda fossil that was 22,000 years old? So asking the questions to get at the the story behind the paper that Mm. doesn't make it into an academic paper, that's kind of fun. For these three news stories, they've actually all been, I've interviewed international scientists outside of the U.S. So I do my interviews over Skype. I email them to set up a time, Google time zones a lot to make sure I have the (laughs) right time. (laughs) Because I was, you know, talking to people who are in China and Europe and... At that point, I start thinking about, okay, like what do I want to put into the story? What's the important stuff? What is the interesting, like larger context behind it? And then, yeah, start writing it. (laughs) Yeah, so I'll, I'll, yeah, go ahead and I'll write the story. You know, I have to try to come up with a, a fun way to catch the reader's attention at the beginning to start the story and make sure I'm including a little bit of background information and setting that a stage for this is what we've known so far. What have these scientists discovered now? And uh, make sure I fit in some broader context about why is this interesting and why are these scientists interested in this. And once I have a, a draft of the story, you know, I'll do some of my own editing and revising. 
then send it off to an editor who will read it and give me lots of very helpful feedback and suggestions. So then I'll go ahead and like revise it again, might send it back to the editor again. There might be some more revisions or not. Yeah, and then make sure there are some nice images to go with it <laughs> and get that all loaded up onto the online website to get ready to get posted. And one interesting I didn't know before I started doing this stuff was, so journalists actually get copies of papers before they get published, before anybody else gets to see them, because you know we'll need like a couple days to like write a story about something. So there's a system where scientists, when they are about to publish what they think is a pretty interesting, maybe newsworthy result, they will release the paper early to journalists so that the press, you know, can we have a kind of like a place where we can kind of look through upcoming papers and pick which one we might want to write about. So is that what happened with the black hole story? The... Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so you might notice if you are online browsing, you know, Twitter or Reddit or wherever you're getting science news, you might notice that there are like a bunch of stories about the same result or the same study coming out on the same day. And that's because everyone has written these stories, you know, a couple days ahead of time and is waiting until the exact time where they can publish the stories. Yeah, so I follow Phil Plate, who is mm -hmm. better known as the bad astronomer on, on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he also wrote a story about this black hole gobbling up another star, and uh -huh. uh, his came out a good five days after yours. And I was just like, whoa, uh -huh. Erica beat him to the punch. This like very famous <laughs> science communicator and astronomer in his own right. I was like, wow, Erica, Erica really uh, <laughs> worked really fast for her story. <laughs> and so maybe, maybe it was because you guys got a sneak preview of that paper before he was able to do that. So an important thing to note too, is getting your story out first isn't necessarily the best thing, right? So sometimes, you know, there'll be a bunch of uh, news sources that will post stories that first day, like announcing this thing happened. But then other outlets can also, you know, we call this like the second day story sometimes where you will write about what was recently announced, you know, not like breaking news. And then you might take a little bit more of an analytical angle to it or come at it from a different angle than people have been or bring something different to the table. So, you know, even if you're not publishing a news story, breaking news that first day, course there's still room for other kinds of stories to tell about a particular discovery. Now you mentioned that the very first step in your investigation process was to read the actual scientific article and scientific journal articles are not always very easy to understand especially when they're outside of your field. So how do you think your training as a scientist has prepared you for this very daunting task of being a scientific communicator, a liaison to the public for all of this very technical jargony knowledge? Yeah, so I think learning how to read scientific literature, you know, as a graduate student and as a researcher was really helpful for me because you have to know how to read a scientific paper. And there are you know, certain techniques that help you do it more quickly or more effectively. And an important thing to know is you don't have to understand everything in the paper because people rarely do, even in your own field. You don't understand every single thing in every single paper about astronomy, for example. So um, it was really helpful for me being able to, you know, look, first look at the main ideas of the paper, get a general idea, you know, definitely read the abstract that describes kind of briefly what's going on in the whole study. I might look through the paper kind of briefly, look at the figures, captions, and that kind of thing to get a general idea. 
and then I read the text of the paper, but I don't worry too much about the details if I don't understand everything. Because like, if I think it's important, I can always ask the author to clarify what something means in my interview. But generally, I don't have to too much because you can get kind of the important information out of it without understanding necessarily everything. I think one thing that's interesting about being a science writer is, you know, part of my job these past couple of weeks has been browsing through scientific papers. And I kind of think of it as like, I'm reading these scientific papers so that other people don't have to, but they can still get to find out what happened. So I know you've only been at this for a few weeks, but so far, what has been the most challenging aspect of being a science writer? One of the things that's really challenging for me is recognizing that there's not room for everything. The online articles that I'm writing are supposed to be like 600 or 700 or something words. I can't fit in all the details that I found from the interview necessarily. And I can't fit in all the details of the experiment that happened or all of the detailed and nuanced background. So I have to be really selective in what I am putting into the story. I have to make sure that it's still a coherent story and that the reader is getting what they need to understand what's going on. So for example, when I was writing the first story, the astronomy story, since that's my background as an astronomy, it was pretty hard to let go of some of the details and be okay sweeping some of the details under the rug, even if you know I know there's more nuance to this or there's a little bit more behind this, but if I don't have room for it and it's not essential to the story, it doesn't need to be in the story. Now, one thing that's helped me to kind of get around this because it's, it's kind of hard is remembering who the audience is. The stories are for the reader. It's not for me. It's not for the scientists that I'm writing about. Yeah, the more that I think about and practice science communication, the more that I realize how much empathy is involved in doing it effectively, putting yourself in your audience's shoes and trying to understand what they know coming into the story, what they need to know in terms of background in order to understand the breaking science, and then what they will actually care about in terms of the material that you deliver and what you want them to take away. People, especially these days when they're perusing things online, are very distractible and maybe don't have a lot of time to sift through a 2,000-word story that goes through the entire (laughs) process of how moths were gathered and panda skulls were dug up. So you kind of need to be able to shave down that story into the nuts and bolts, but also tell it in an engaging way. That's really, really difficult to do, but you seem to be doing it really well. So one of my last (laughs) questions for you, (laughs) one of my last (laughs) questions for you is how do you think the ordinary well, I don't want to say ordinary scientists because, you know, science isn't necessarily an ordinary profession, but how do you think a scientist who doesn't really think about or engage in science communication, especially the practice of science writing for non-scientists, could benefit from doing more science writing themselves? Yeah, that's an interesting question. First off, I think communication broadly is a really vital part of doing science. Because, of course, scientists are not just individuals locked up in their individual little labs and their individual little ivory towers, you know, chipping away, doing science by themselves. Because science is a huge collaborative endeavor, whether it's, you know, small group collaborations that are part of larger collaborations or sometimes you have really massive collaborations of hundreds of people. So it's really important in science and science research for scientists to be able to communicate with each other. Every scientist, you know, is an expert in their particular thing, their field or subfield, 
but is a complete amateur in all the other scientific fields, right? Usually. Some people are very interdisciplinary. But for example, an astronomy professor will be an expert in their field in astrophysics, but maybe they haven't had a biology course since high school. You know, they don't know any of the recent research about biology or anything. So I think my audience is not necessarily just non-scientists, right? Because a scientist, you know, is an expert in their thing, but a non-expert in all the other things. So an astrophysicist could still read an interesting story about a moth using magnetic fields to migrate, and that would be something completely new for them. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) So Erica, what are you currently working on right now um, that you can share with us? I don't know if things are like embargoed, like you're not allowed to say that you are working on something. (laughs) So if I was working on like news stories like I was for this, so my first three stories, of course, like I wouldn't have been able to tell you about them before they were published because yeah, they are embargoed. They're not allowed to talk about them before the paper is published. I'm actually not currently working on a news story. I probably will do another one next week, but I haven't started doing one yet. But I am currently working on some things for the print magazine. Uh, Discovered some people have, you know, longer stories that are called features and also shorter ones that are called columns. There's also a section at the beginning that's kind of a lot of quick, like, one-page things. And sometimes it's a short story, short, you know, one-page science story. And sometimes it's a full-page image, like an interesting science image with an accompanying caption. So one thing that I've done so far is I've written a caption for one picture in the magazine. And that sounds like, okay, you've written a caption for a picture. But this was a hundred word caption and it was actually really hard to do. So I was describing a picture of a galaxy and kind of why, what was interesting about it. And having to describe what's going on in the picture and give some background and say what's interesting and important about it in a hundred words was really hard. (laughs) I can imagine. Mm. Being on yearbook staffs for as long as I've, uh, has taught me the critical importance of captions. They're the most read copy or the most read writing in a book because the first thing that people do is to look at the pictures pictures. and then they read the captions of the pictures. And so they're really critical. And also there's that old adage that a picture is worth a thousand words, which is (laughs) misleading sometimes. I mean, I, I do agree that pictures can tell very interesting stories, but captions are really critical to helping people focus in on exactly what story that picture is trying to tell and to give information that a visual image alone cannot because a visual image alone is just a static picture and adding the caption adds flavor, adds dynamism, adds that aspect of time where you can talk about how that was made or how it's important. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, writing a caption is definitely... No, uh, no, no small thing to just laugh about. I mean, you did a, I'm sure you did a really great job. When is that issue coming out so that I can actually get a physical copy? Ooh, yeah. So that is going to be in the October issue of Discover. You mean I have to wait all the way until October (laughs) to read your caption? Oh, man. prepare their stuff like months in advance (laughs) yeah yeah i suppose i should know that from your book stuff as well um okay very cool so where can people follow you online just in case they want to see some of your content before october yeah so um, i'm most active online on twitter my twitter handle is erica k carlson so erica is spelled with a k e-r-i-k-a and then my middle initial k carlson c-a-r-l-s-o-n 
whenever I publish a story, I'll post it on Twitter. Sometimes I'll also just post random fun things or I'll share other people's science stories or random nerdy sciencey things or just silly things also. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, otherwise the October issue of Discover will have a picture with my caption in it. The November issue of Discover, I'll get to write a one page thing, but I'm not going to reveal too much about what that is yet because I'd rather it be a little bit of a surprise. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> wow. Suspense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Suspense is good. But it'll be a fun. It'll be a fun physicsy topic. Hmm. <laughs> now I'm trying to but guess. In the meantime, I'll be writing stuff for the online. Okay. The online news. So. Good. Yeah, you pumped out those three articles really quickly. Okay. One final question for you to bring okay. it back to Star Trek. You know, now you're a published science writer and real life science communicator. Is there <laughs> some particular instance of? technobabble in Star Trek that you just wish some in-universe science communicator would maybe write an article about to actually explain what that thing means when it's set on screen? Hmm. Thinking about that one. Well, okay. Maybe this counts as technobabble. I'm not sure. So, so what I'm thinking of right now, it's not necessarily, you know, Lots of silly, sciencey sounding made up words and supposed to mean something, but kind of a, a bit of a little bit of a recurring thing I've seen in Star Trek episodes is sometimes there is life on other planets in the form of energy beings <laughs> that yeah. are, you know, like not corporeal. They don't have a body necessarily, they're like energy beings. And, but that's all the explanation, at least that I remember, that we get. And I want to know, like, what is an energy being? How does that work? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's such a great. Oh, I, I love that. Story about that, so I can understand what an energy being is. <laughs> you know, we could spend three more hours talking about definitions for life, how life might work <laughs> in a non-corporeal form. Yeah, the origin of consciousness. Uh, <laughs> yes, I totally, totally agree with you. Somebody should write an article about what an energy being is. Yes, please, Mr. Spock, tell me more about <laughs> energy beings. Yes, explain to me. Oh, yes, wonderful. I was going to say subspace is something that I oh. definitely want to learn more about. It seems very yeah. central to faster than light travel in Star Trek, but nobody Exactly. Yeah, how you can talk to people many, many light years away in real time through subspace. Somehow things can travel faster than the speed of light through subspace. And how does that work? Yeah. I, I want to know more about that concept as well. But I like yours better. I, I totally love the, <laughs> the non-corporeal life forms. What in the world does that mean? Can life what exist? You know, yeah, without <laughs> physical form, without the chemistry in our bodies at work. Okay, well, we've spent a long time talking about real great science, science communication, Star Trek. It's been a pleasure having you back on board Strange New Worlds, Erica. Thank Thanks you. for joining Thanks, me. Mike. Yeah. That concludes episode 39 of Strange New Worlds. It was a pleasure to get back in touch with my friend Erica Carlson. I gained a newfound appreciation for science writing by talking to her, and I hope you did too. 
Every discovery that you hear about in the news not only took the efforts of scientists, but also the hard work of science communicators like Erica to translate that discovery and craft it into a story that you can consume and appreciate. Science communicators are like the chefs of science. They don't grow the food themselves, but they make it palatable and enjoyable for everyone. And their crucial contributions should never be overlooked. I'm about to take a few weeks of vacation, so there will be another brief hiatus in Strange New Worlds episodes. But July is looking like a really exciting month. Elise and I are really looking forward to being Justin Osher's guests in mid-July on Earl Grey, Trek FM's Star Trek The Next Generation podcast. And in late July, my friend and frequent guest on Strange New Worlds, Peter Gao, is coming to Pasadena for a scientific conference. And by now, you know that means you'll be hearing his voice on Strange New Worlds again. So, stay tuned. And I'll see you out there. <laughs>